0: I have a lot to cover tonight and so I want to have you turn with me to Romans 8. I have a history of music stands falling apart on me so when it happens just uh, bear with me. Romans chapter 8 and while you're finding that I'm going to pray for us. Father thank you for this time that we have tonight. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ which is that which has enabled us Lord to have hope. The resurrection provided for our justification provided for us to be able to be made right before God and to have hope that there is a man who has gone to death and won and we may confidently follow him. I pray for all who are listening tonight that you would bless us, Lord, with your word, with the hope of our future life. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. So my task for tonight is to talk to you about your resurrection in the coming age. And I've preached on the resurrection a lot. It's one of my favorite topics. I've written a book on heaven, and I I enjoy this topic a lot. In some ways, though, preaching on the resurrection to a, a younger crowd is a little tough. Because an older crowd, if I'm preaching to 80-year-old people on the resurrection, they're like, bring it on. We're ready for this, right? At your age, and very naturally so, you're, you're saying, that sounds great, but I'd kind of like to live my life first. And, and if, I, if I'm resurrected soon, it means something kind of went horribly wrong in my life, right? So it makes it a little bit tougher to preach. But I think one of the reasons it might be a little tougher is the tendency of the church, of Jesus Christ in general, to not emphasize eschatology, not emphasize the end times. And to, to to basically say, receive Jesus as your Savior so you can go to heaven someday. And that's it. Without really explanation of what goes beyond that. I thought a lot about this and prayed about how to accomplish my task for tonight. And uh, let's see, how do I get this? There we go, that's better. Um, I I know that some of you are a little younger, but this is a grown-up topic, and I've never wanted to treat anybody like kids, so I'm going to speak to you like grown-ups. We're going to use big terms, we're going to use some terms and, and, and words that are intelligent, And I figure if you can do Algebra and Algebra 2 and History and all the things you do in school, then you can can hear this. Because I don't want to try to dumb this down. This is a complex topic, and it's an important one. Some would say maybe the most important, because this is really the end of all things. The ultimate objective of your faith is to leave this world faithfully and successfully. All of you will leave this world, but the main question is, where will you end up? My prayer for every one of you is that you will leave this world headed toward a resurrection body with which to worship the Lord forever. I want to do a couple of kind of basic things, foundational things up front, just to kind of get us going here. What I'm going to talk about tonight makes necessary kind of a basic knowledge of the end times. I can't assume that everybody's on the same page here with this, so I'm going to take a couple of minutes and just tell you what's coming next, because we're going to plug some things into that context. So where are we now? Very briefly, we live in the church age right now. That's what theologians call it. This is the age in which the citizens of Christ's future kingdom are now being added. How is that? By means of the gospel. At the end of the church age, First Thessalonians 4, in your main passage this week, 1 Corinthians 15, says that the trumpet of God will sound and the, the living believers in Christ will be transformed and taken to heaven and the dead believers in Christ will be raised and all, all of us will be together in heaven. While we are together in heaven, for the next seven years, according to Daniel chapter 9, the earth will come into a time called the, the tribulation. The last half of that seven years, technically called more the great tribulation. This is a time of suffering on the earth, a time where God is pouring out judgment. The church age saints that are already in heaven now, and they're resurrected and glorified bodies during the tribulation, while they're in heaven, that's us, on the earth, the gospel will go forth again in really unprecedented ways, and for the first time in all of history, will reach every single tribe, tongue, and nation on earth during that seven years. Antichrist will be ruling during this time, and he'll begin persecuting and murdering Jews, murdering the new followers of Christ by the thousands and thousands. Eventually, during this time, a large number of Jews will come to saving faith in Christ and they'll be prepared to form a restored nation of Israel. At that time, at the end of the seven years, Christ will return and He'll take back His earth. He'll reign over the earth for a thousand years. Satan will be bound. The earth will enjoy wonderful peace populated by the already resurrected church-age saints, that's us, and by the still mortal descendants of those who survived the Great Tribulation as believers. So you'll have those with glorified bodies and those with unglorified bodies. Satan will be released one last time at the end of this era to lead one last very short-lived rebellion. Jesus will defeat that rebellion. He will judge Satan And all the unsaved dead of all time will be thrown into the lake of fire, into hell. At that time, God will recreate the earth and recreate heaven. So we have a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem for all the redeemed of all the ages to enjoy. So that's the context. You have to kind of have a little bit of that at least dotted line, uh, timeline to understand this. I tell you that because what we're going to do tonight overlaps into both those ages, the, the millennial, the thousand year reign of Christ and the final state. We'll kind of ping pong back and forth a little bit between those. You're going to enjoy being resurrected. Now, I, I can't say a lot about um, how great your new bodies are going to be, because for most of you, you're in the prime of life right now. And you're, you're like, I'm doing pretty well right now. But I know some of you here have already suffered as young people. Um, some of you break a bone every three months. That's your that's your thing. We won't mention any names back there, Noel. <laughs> some of you have dealt with very, very difficult diseases and difficulties, so you get that. But I'm not going to push that on you right now. We'll talk about that later. But I know one thing you do struggle with, and that's your own sin nature. So guess what you'll have in your resurrected body? First of all, you'll have a perfect soul. You'll have perfect freedom from evil. You'll never think a selfish or sinful thought, never a harsh or a mean word, and never a sinful deed. You'll never, ever have to say, I'm sorry I said that. There will be no sin, no sorrow, no suffering, no pain of any kind. You'll experience perfect comfort, love, joy, peace, and pleasure at all times. You'll have a perfect soul. You'll also have, and what most people talk about in this topic, a perfect body. A body that can't degenerate in any way. A body that reflects the glorious resurrection of Christ himself. A powerful body, no disease, no weakness whatsoever. I was pretty athletic as a young man, and I used to like to play football in the in the park with anybody who would play, and I still remember being able to go out for a pass and kick it into fourth and fifth gear and just outrun anybody. And I still remember the day I tried to kick it into fourth gear, and there was no fourth gear anymore. It was just gone. I'm like, gear shifting. No, what happened? And then I got run over. And then no third gear, no second gear, and now I sit on the sidelines and say, bring some popcorn while I watch everybody else play. And so while you have a healthy body now, the fact is because of sin, it's going to degenerate. But in the resurrection, you'll have the same glorified body as Christ himself, a powerful body. A body free of disease, free of problems, free of weakness. And by the way, you'll enjoy a perfect mind and body synergy. That your, your body will always do what your mind tells it to do. And your, your mind will always do what your body tells it to do. Now, you ever think you can do something? Oh, I can jump off this 10 uh, foot ledge and be fine. And your mind says, yes, do it. And your body is on the way down going, no, why did you do this? Your body and mind will work together Perfectly. Christ left one place in his glorified body and was instantly in another place. It seems to indicate it's at least possible that we'll have that ability, although I'm not going to make any assumptions about it, since uh, New Jerusalem has streets, which means we're going to be walking on them. But whatever your body can do, it'll be perfect. It'll be exactly as God intended in the first place. You haven't experienced a body that acts like a prison yet, but most of you will. And if you have parents and grandparents who have gone through that, you know what that looks like. But in your resurrection body, you'll be youthful, you'll be vigorous, you'll be able to run and jump and laugh. So you'll have a perfect soul, you'll have a perfect body, and you'll also have a perfect identity. You'll have a perfect identity. You'll still be you. You'll be the perfected person that God intended you to be. If you're a male, you'll be a male. If you're a female, you'll be a female. You'll be in perfect communion with God. Perfectly able to communicate and forever knowing that you are in Christ. You'll never have a doubt. Your identity will be perfect. So, a perfect soul, a perfect body, a perfect identity. And it'd be fun to preach a whole sermon on that and to talk just about that, but... Is the purpose of your resurrection in the the coming age just to have a cool body that never wears out? Is that the whole point? Or maybe to suddenly appear someplace like Jesus did and surprise all your friends? I always thought that would be fun. No, it goes way beyond that. There are many purposes for your resurrection, and they're glorious, they're lofty, they're God-honoring. And I I knocked it down. I started with 18, and I figured David wouldn't invite me back, so we'll do 10 tonight. But I want to give you 10 purposes for your resurrection in the coming age. Now, this is kind of a Bible study, so we're going to start in Romans 8 as our launching point, but then I'm going to have to speed up, and you can maybe take some notes about the references, if that will help you. Then at the end, we're going to go to one more passage. But we'll start in Romans 8. I'm going to zip ahead of you for the rest of our time, then we'll go to one more at the end first purpose for your resurrection we'll call it glorification glorification we find this in multiple places in Romans 8 Romans 8 verse 16 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him What is Paul speaking of here? He's speaking of the confidence that we have in our salvation in Christ. And that confidence comes because of the witness of the Holy Spirit. That you know that you know that you know that you're in Christ. You've genuinely repented of the loyalty you used to have to your sin. You've admitted to God that you've violated His perfect holiness. And you've asked for mercy. You've asked for forgiveness. And now are a child of the living God. And so Paul says that you you have confidence in this. And now, in fact, you have a right to be called the child of God. It is your divine right. It means you're an heir of God along with Christ. What does that mean? It means that the true Christian gets what Christ gets, which includes, Paul says here, suffering. That the true Christian will suffer with and for Christ. It means your faith will be proven to be real when the opportunity to suffer for the gospel comes. And what's the result? You'll be glorified with Him. Look at verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that the creation didn't sin. Those trees outside didn't rebel against God. Your little puppy didn't rebel against God. It was mankind that sinned. And because of that, it subjected creation to the curse of sin, which means that things in creation die. They die over and over again. And and he represents creation, Paul does, like it's a person. A a person who's waiting for relief from the corruption and the death that plagues the natural world. So imagine a, a tree that's dying, and that tree, Paul says, is like a person. It's getting tired of dying over and over and over again. And this so-called person of creation knows something, knows that creation gets relief. Creation gets to finally not die over and over again when the children of God are glorified. Meaning that all who have received Christ as Savior have now been come to their final glorified resurrected bodies in the coming age. Verse 23, he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I read verse. 23 to a dying woman once in a hospital who was hours away from going home to heaven and she was holding my hand and as I read that I thought she was going to break my fingers because she was so excited because she was groaning literally in her body groaning waiting for this moment and for her it was hours away and she was excited about that. Paul continues the theme of our coming glorification. Verse 29 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So that's the end of the process. The glorification of the believer is the final step in the progression of salvation. It's it's the final destination. And it refers to something very specific. What does it mean that we are glorified? It's not just that we get a cool body. What it means theologically is that you are a living trophy of victory over death. That you're glorified along with Christ. Let me put it to you this way. According to the book of Genesis, if anyone lived less than a hundred years for most of history, that was considered a tragedy. You can read in the book of Genesis about men who lived 5, 6, 7, 8, even 969 years. That was normal. And I know we say that that doesn't sound normal. No, what's abnormal is to die when you're 70. That's abnormal. The fact that lifespans have been decreasing over time, it's screaming that something is not right. That this isn't right just curious here, how many of you have ever met your great-great-grandparents? Anybody? A couple of you, right? How many of you ever met great-great-great-grandparents? Five generations, and that's about it. We have one exception. There's about one out of 10,000 people that that happens to. That's not natural. We're supposed to know our family, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our great-great-grandparents. That's what's natural, and so this decrease in lifespan Tells us something is horribly wrong. But your glorification in the resurrected body is the exact opposite of this. It gives clear proof that death doesn't reign over you anymore. That just like the decreasing lifespans now tells us that death is dominating creation In, in the coming age. Just imagine this you've just received your resurrection body and you're you're sprinting from here to 100 miles away in two seconds just to see what that's like and whatever you're doing with your, your resurrection body. And imagine that there are still, there won't be, but just imagine that there are still some critics who say, you haven't conquered death. So what do you do? Well, you don't have to do anything. If you live to be 100... After your resurrection, those critics can can still say, well, yeah, but lots of people used to live to be 100. But if you live to be 200, they'll say, well, I have to admit, that's pretty good. But when you've lived tens of millions of years, you now stand as a trophy to the victory over death that Christ gave you. You have been glorified. Your immortality is proof of what? That Christ's payment for your sin was sufficient not to purchase 10 years of life, not to purchase 100 years of life or 1,000 years of life, but to purchase eternal life. Here's a second purpose for your resurrection. We'll call this one invasion. Invasion. Glorification and invasion. Now this is when we're going to fast forward to a whole bunch of scriptures and if you're a note taker, you might just write these down. At the end of this age, as I said a minute ago, the the living believers in Christ will be taken up and changed to have glorified bodies, while those who have already died will be reunited with their now glorified bodies in resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that at this point we will always be with the Lord, meaning we'll always be together as well. For the next seven years in human history, while the glorified saints are in heaven, God will pour out His judgment on the earth. Antichrist will take power at that time. In the meantime, in heaven, Revelation 6 records that the Lord Jesus Christ is given a scroll. It is a deed of ownership for planet earth. And as he opens this scroll, judgments are poured down on earth from heaven. One after another opens these seals of the scroll. The first seal, the second seal, the third seal. And judgments from God are unleashed on planet earth to soften the earth for the coming invasion of Christ. Israel will repent of having rejected Christ as their Messiah. Zechariah 14.2 says that all the nations of the earth will form up against Israel in preparation for a battle that the book of Revelation calls Armageddon. And what happens then? Zechariah 14.3 says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. Zechariah 14.12 says, and, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. And as we'll see in a moment... The reason that people are judged in this manner is because the Lord Jesus Christ opens his mouth and speaks a word of destruction. And people die so fast that they're still standing up when it happens. But the question is, will he be alone? Will Jesus be invading planet Earth all by himself? Well, the scene in heaven just before the invasion of planet Earth Looks like this. In heaven, you've already been resurrected. You're in your resurrection body. We join all the believers of the church age. That's you, that's me. In our resurrection bodies, and we join together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The final joining together of Christ and the church in permanent union. The church is said to be wearing something. Fine linen, bright and pure. I want you to remember that. Fine linen, bright and pure. What happens next? Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. His robe, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, his robe is dipped in the blood of the enemies he's about to kill. Meaning that it's showing that his victory will be certain. And here it is. Remember the phrase I said earlier. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Who is that? Seven verses earlier, the church, we are the ones wearing the fine linen, bright and pure. That connection is undeniable. We will be with Christ. And what, what happens then? From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress to the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So your resurrection body will serve you as you are with the Lord Jesus Christ in the coming invasion of planet Earth. And I know that's mind-boggling. That's why we only get a few verses on it, because I think our brains would just blow all their fuses if we tried to catch much more than that. And if you're worried about, I don't want to go into a battle, that's all right. You'll just be behind there on your little white horse watching Jesus do all the work. And then you're there with him. What about after the invasion? will judge all of the survivors of the great tribulation, then he'll set up his kingdom on earth. He will reform Israel as a nation with himself as king and himself as king of all the kings over all the earth. And the believing survivors of the great tribulation will be repopulating the earth. So what's next for you in your resurrection body, in your immortal body? That brings us to our third purpose. We'll call this one administration. Administration administration part of your role in this kingdom of christ sometimes called the millennial kingdom because revelation 20 says this phase of redemptive history takes a thousand years but part of your role will be the administration of this kingdom under the ultimate king jesus himself now if you say what's administration it just means you're running things that you're in charge of stuff We know this very clearly from Scripture. I'll give you a few examples. Luke 19, verse 11 and following, records that right before his death and resurrection, Jesus told a parable about a nobleman, a a, a wealthy man. And this nobleman traveled far away because he was going to receive a kingdom for himself, and then he was coming back. The nobleman gathered ten of his servants, and he gave them each ten minas. That's a unit of money to invest in business on his behalf. That's about like giving somebody three years' salary and saying, go invest this money, do something with it to make it, uh, to make it grow. When the nobleman returned, after having received his kingdom, he called all of his servants to account. Those who had done well and those who were faithful over this little bit of money were given a reward in the nobleman's kingdom. What was the reward? The reward was to rule ten cities or five cities, depending on how faithful they had been with what he had given them. And the nobleman, of course, is Jesus himself. And he's ascended into heaven. He's receiving the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of earth. And those who have been faithful to him in this life are given real, tangible responsibilities and ruling responsibilities in the coming kingdom. This isn't, this isn't symbolic. This isn't a metaphor. It's real. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that we will judge angels. It means that angels will be under your authority. The book of Revelation makes it very clear that believers in Christ will administer or run things in the kingdom of Christ. Revelation 5.10, All the ransomed people for God from every people on earth shall reign on the earth, Revelation 5 says. Revelation 20, verse 5, The the tribulation saints, those who, who came to faith in Christ and then were killed for their faith during the great tribulation, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's Revelation 20, verse 4. It says the same thing in verse 6. Then skipping ahead to the end of all time, the final state, the new heavens and the new earth. Speaking of all believers from all ages, Revelation 22, 5 says they will reign forever and ever. I know some of you are youngest children in your home and you still don't know what it's like to be reigning over anybody. And I understand that. But in the coming kingdom, you will be... If I can put it this way, kings and queens. That was God's purpose for you. Here's a fourth purpose for your resurrection. We'll call this one relation. Relation. One of the most ancient Bible passages about the coming age of Christ on earth is found in Job chapter 19. And you don't have to turn there, but I'll I'll read you some verses. Job, you remember, was afflicted by tremendous suffering in the sovereign will of God to demonstrate to Satan that the true believer in God will never and cannot and will not forsake God, even if he's suffering terribly. And Job, who most likely lived around the time of Abraham, around 2000 B.C., he says prophetically why he can have hope. He's lost everything. He's lost all his money. He's lost his children. He's lost his position. Here's what he says in Job 19, verses 25 through 27. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is a massively important prophetic statement by Job that the God who is sovereignly ordaining all of His pain, all of His suffering, all of His anguish, is also the one who will save Him, is also His Redeemer. Now I want to just make a couple observations about the text I just read. First of all, the Redeemer who at the last, meaning at the end of all time, will stand upon the earth, this must be Jesus Christ, the physical manifestation of God in the flesh. Another observation... Job says that after his physical body, my skin, he says, has decomposed into dust. He says, yet in my flesh I shall see God. What does it mean? It means that Job knew prophetically from a word from God that he would have a brand new body with which to see God. Another observation, Job makes it clear that this is not some some symbolic wish. This isn't some ethereal floating around invisibly. He says it over and over again to make sure we get it. In my flesh I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold. When he says eyes, it's not metaphorical. He means these eyeballs will look upon God. He's stating very clearly that Job will stand on this earth His Redeemer will stand on this earth and Job will behold Him. And what does this do to him? What does this thought bring to him? He says, my heart faints within me. It's a phrase that means he's emotionally overwhelmed at the thought of meeting God. That's the thought that gives him hope in the suffering. You don't get hope in suffering by saying, well, things might be better tomorrow because they might not be. You get hope and suffering by looking far beyond the present to the future. And so Job will experience, what I said a moment ago, relation to his Redeemer. Now, what does that mean? Why don't we use that word? We use the word relatives to speak of family members, right? These are my weird relatives from Alabama. We introduce people that, I'm sorry I'm related to them, but that's just the way they are. But what does the word relative mean? It means those you are related to. They are your relations. There's a family relationship. We saw back in Romans 8 that we're fellow heirs and fellow children of God with Jesus. What does that mean? It means we're related in Christ. Romans 8.29 says that God chose you for salvation in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, This is hard for us to grasp, but you'll get it when you see Him face to face. Right now at this moment, Jesus is a Savior. He is a King. He is your God. But in the coming kingdom, in great reality, face to face, person to person, you will relate to Him as your brother. That's an amazing relative to have, isn't it? And of course that means that all in the coming kingdom are in the family of God. That every kingdom citizen is family. So you'll have forever and ever to enjoy relation. Here's a fifth purpose. A fifth purpose we'll call cultivation. Cultivation. And I'm speaking of growing stuff things that pop up out of the ground of farming, of enjoying the produce of the land and I'll I'll tell you why this is important I, I know for almost all of us this is pretty much unrelatable today just a few generations ago both my sets of grandparents had a garden in their backyard like you didn't have a basketball hoop and a swimming pool, you had a garden and you grew your own food and if you went up and down the streets that they lived on everybody did that that used to be normal In today's culture, less than 1% of American citizens live on a farm. 150 years ago, 90% of American citizens lived on farms. That used to be normal before the industrial age, that, that people lived on large pieces of land that produced food and livestock. For almost all of human history, agricultural life has been the norm. That's been what we do. This is a major emphasis in Scripture when it it speaks of the coming age, the coming kingdom of Christ, a a return to a world dominated by agriculture, the peaceful life of agriculture. The most famous Old Testament passage about this is Amos chapter 9. God promises in Amos 9 that Israel will be restored as a nation. And then God describes an amazing agricultural atmosphere. Listen to this. Amos 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. What does that mean? It means that the people who plant the seeds are going as fast as they can because the plants are coming up and they're about to be run over by the people who are harvesting the plants and they're about to be run over by the people who are are, uh, plowing the ground to plant the seeds again. Now, it's meant to be what's called hyperbole. It's a joke. But it's meant to say that that you drop a seed in the ground, you better watch out, something's growing. It's like jack and the beanstalk times a million. It's It's a wonderful time. Amos goes on to say, they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. This was a huge, huge future hope for the Jews. And in fact, even in their non-scriptural writings, ancient writings, they affirmed a hope in a prosperous agricultural future. There's an ancient book called the Apocalypse of Baruch, and it's not part of the Bible, but it does tell us what Jews thought about this future time. The author of the Apocalypse of Baruch wrote this, The vine shall yield its fruit ten thousand fold, and on each vine there shall be a thousand branches, and each branch shall produce a thousand clusters, and each cluster produce a thousand grapes, and each grape a barrel of wine. And those who have hungered shall rejoice. Also, they shall behold marvels every day, for winds shall go forth from before me, to bring every fragrance, the cloud of, the, the fragrance of aromatic fruits, and the close of the day, clouds distilling the dews of health. This is a picture of a perfect, pristine agricultural world. A writer writing in what's called the Sibylline oracles, an ancient Jewish writing, wrote this. Earth shall give to mortals her best fruit, in countless stores of corn, wine, and oil. From heaven shall come a sweet drink of luscious honey. The trees shall yield their proper fruits, and rich flocks, and lambs of sheep, and kids of goats. He will cause sweet fountains of milk to burst forth, and the cities shall be full of good things, and the fields rich. Neither shall there be any sword throughout the land or battle, nor shall the earth be convulsed anymore, nor shall there be any more drought, no famine or hail your resurrection body will be the perfect vehicle in which to enjoy the agricultural bounty of the world even as you also reign with Christ what's the great thing about planting things you don't have to stand there and watch it you plant it and you go off and do other things and come back and harvest it so you can do both speaking of a glorious world here's a sixth purpose for your resurrection we'll call this one exploration exploration Exploration. In the coming kingdom, Messiah Jesus will restore much of what's been wrong with nature, but not in the full form of the new earth yet. But the prophet Isaiah speaks of a revitalized natural world. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. The prophet says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It's like a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. What's he talking about here? The glory of Lebanon. Lebanon was famous for incredible forests. It would be like the high Sierras of California. The majesty of Carmel. It's a word that means land of gardens. And how about Sharon? Sharon was a land famous for wildflowers that were so beautiful that they were picked like you would pick roses. The inhabitants of the earth are going to see the glory of God as manifested in this amazing new nature. The Sahara Desert is gone. Deserts are watered and there's flowers everywhere. Now what does this imply? Well, it strongly implies exploration, doesn't it? And enjoyment. Or how about this? If we fast forwarded to the new earth where New Jerusalem is... Revelation 21 gives a ton of detail about this heavenly city which will come to rest on the new earth. 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide. In case that's not enough, 1,400 miles high. With a wall 216 feet, either thick or high. There's good reasons for either one. The city has the appearance of clear gold. What's clear gold? I don't know, but it's going to be pretty spectacular. The wall has 12 gates each named after the tribe of Israel, 350 miles apart. The foundation stones of the city are incredibly ornate. They'll have every kind of jewel God has ever invented. It'll be like a rainbow made of sapphires and rubies and and diamonds and so forth. The streets will be gold and yet transparent, Revelation 21.21. The streets will be avenues to explore the glories of New Jerusalem. The the river of life will flow from the throne of God. The tree of life will be on either side of the river bearing 12 different kinds of fruit every month. And the hustle and the bustle of a perfect city with, with perfect people, what's going to be happening there? Revelation 21 says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it meaning that the unique products and resources and goods from every nation will be brought to the the earth or brought to New Jerusalem. And I'm going to come back to that in a bit. Now, keep this in mind. To have a New Jerusalem that will be 2.8 billion cubic miles, our current earth couldn't hold it. If New Jerusalem landed on our Earth as it is now, it would knock Earth out of orbit and we'd be fried or frozen, one of the two. So New Earth will have to be substantially larger. And somebody might say, well, that's that's not possible. It's possible now. It's happened already. Astronomers have a classification for huge planets. They call them super-Jupiters. A few years back, they discovered one super-Jupiter 13 times larger than Jupiter or 17,173 times larger than Earth. New Jerusalem, not a problem. What a city and what an Earth we'll have to explore. This may be part of the promise of Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore lived in California for about a dozen years I haven't been to one tenth of one tenth of one percent of all the cool stuff that's here in a fallen world in a state that everyone's trying to leave on an earth that's potentially tens of thousands of times bigger than our current earth it'll be endless here's a seventh purpose and this one gets pretty serious the seventh purpose for your resurrection is vindication Vindication, meaning that you will finally see justice done. In this age, Christians are second and third class citizens. It's happening in our country even now. We're belittled, we're abused... We're laughed at. We are, as Paul said, fools for Christ. You want to know why several hundred years ago, Christians started finding camps like this one to go to and hang out together? Because the world has always hated believers and we needed a place to go and just take a break and to just get away. That's why these camps exist. Because the world hates you and the world hates Christ. So we come up someplace that they're too lazy to drive to and we can just be here together for a few days. In our own church right now, in Grace Bible Church, we have people who have been harmed. We have one person, even now, being intimidated in their workplace because that person is a Christian. They are fearing for their jobs. Why? Because in our world right now, the unbelievers run everything. We have a wicked president, we have a wicked governor, most of the governors of our states are wicked. We have a corrupted government that is greedy and hasn't been honest in probably a century if more, if not more. Unbelievers run everything. During the coming Great Tribulation, when Antichrist is ruling and slaughtering the new believers in Christ, waging war against them, the treatment against Christians will be at its all time high in all of history. But Daniel chapter 7 represents a scene in heaven right before the return of Christ in which earth is now presented as a gift to Jesus. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13, "...I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him." This is God the Son, the Son of Man, being presented to God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, remember how Antichrist is waging war against the saints, the believers. Well, Daniel 7 talks about Antichrist calling him the horn and his horrible treatment of all the followers of Christ. Daniel 7.21 As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. The Christians are being slaughtered by the thousands. Not even allowed to live on this earth. Not allowed to breathe the air. Not allowed to eat the food. Not allowed to drink the water. Now in the earlier verses, God the Father is called the Ancient of Days. But now in verse 21, with the horror of Antichrist persecuting believers, now Jesus is called the Ancient of Days. And listen to what he does when he returns. Daniel 7, 21, And I looked, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. What does that mean? Role reversal. All the wicked are now under all of the righteous. Not the other way around. No longer will the Christian be the second class citizen. Now you will be the kings and the queens of this earth. And you will rule. You will reign. In this age and in the great tribulation, the enemies of God are in charge. They're in charge under their master Satan that Ephesians 2 calls the prince of the power of the air. But when Christ returns, the tables are turned. And now God's people will have authority over the nations. No more wicked rulers. It will be a thing of the past. In your resurrected body, you will be God's instrument of vindication to be in the world which which now is oppressing the people of God, but you'll be vindicated by being the ones who now rule in the coming kingdom. The last three purposes start to kind of take a crescendo upward, kind of take an upward trajectory toward heavenly things. And so you'll kind of see this as we go. Our eighth purpose we'll call restoration. Restoration. The original plan of God for his creation was to make a physical earth, perfect in every way for humanity, also perfect in every way to live. The, the earth is very tangible. It's material. The original couple, Adam and Eve, they lived in a country that God named Eden. And the highest point in Eden, since four rivers flowed downhill from the center of that point, the highest point was called the Garden of Eden. They enjoyed a physical earth, a physical nation, a physical sky, physical trees, real dirt, real animals, real plants. And God called all of this creation very good. Shortly after the beginning of the church age during the 2nd and 3rd centuries a wicked and invasive belief system began to make its way into the walls and the doorways of the church. There was a belief system called Gnosticism. It's from a Greek, Greek word that just means knowledge. Gnosticism boasted that some people are given this higher elevated super duper spiritual knowledge from God while others don't have it. And part of this super duper elevated knowledge that some people supposedly had, and they were invading the churches with this, saying, oh, you poor little people that are just believing the Bible, oh, we know something much greater. Part of this knowledge was that they preached that everything that is physical, everything you can touch, everything you can taste, everything you can see, everything you can smell, all of it is inherently wicked. All of it is evil. And so what are we striving for as humanity? We're striving for the invisible. We're striving for the spiritual. We're striving for that which you can't see. We're striving to enter into a state which is just completely ethereal and and invisible. By the way, today we call that Buddhism. It's the same thing. And the church bought it. They began to go down this road. This was not based on any teaching in Scripture, but frankly it was based on the teaching of the Greek philosopher Plato. Gnosticism was accompanied at the same time by, by another as a one-two punch Gnosticism with one hand and the, the other one was an allegorical interpretation of scripture which began to be normal. What does allegorical interpretation of Scripture means? It means taking physical, real things that the Bible talks about and giving them a so-called higher spiritual value. That heaven is most valued as a spiritual, ethereal, invisible place. That a real Israel isn't what God really meant in His hundreds of promises to restore Israel, but that just the spiritual promises are what God meant. That generally anything physical is less good and less desirable than the the invisible spiritual qualities that we're to strive for. And one of the results of that influence, which is still pervasive in the church to this day, is a de-emphasis on the physical aspects of the coming kingdom of Christ. Remember the passage in Isaiah 35 that speaks of the watered deserts and wilderness with the wildflowers blooming and, and that all this points to the glory of God? It's very common today to see those physical things as only symbolic of the greater truth of the glory of God, that they're just symbols. One of my heroes of the faith, John Calvin, I, I admired him greatly, but he is he is typical of those who take this metaphorical allegorical symbolic view. In his commentary on Isaiah, John Calvin wrote that those pictures of lush flowers and a watered wilderness and a, and a flourishing desert are metaphors. For the glory of God. And in fact he says that seeing this as a literally real improved wilderness during the reign of Messiah is something, quote, that Jews have contrived in their own imagination. But you remember where we started all the way back in Romans 8? Creation cries out for relief. The creation's waiting to make a comeback. Part of the purpose of your resurrection is to live in the world as God originally intended it. A world restored by the grace of God to enjoy the delights of a world made entirely like the Garden of Eden. Not much like our world today at all. and am taking even higher view here. Our ninth purpose for your resurrection, celebration. Celebration. I've already mentioned that Revelation 21, and I'll add now again, Zechariah 14 describes that in both the coming millennial kingdom of Christ, the thousand year reign, and in the final state of the new heavens and the new earth, the kings of the earth will bring what the Bible calls their glory and their honor. It's a a lofty way of saying bringing their stuff, bringing their flavors with their goods and their artwork and the wealth. That comes from their particular nation into Jerusalem. Even today, we, we enjoy multicultural things, don't we? we? We enjoy different types of food. We enjoy different types of art. Zechariah 14, going along with that, specifies that Christ will reinstitute what's called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. This is the only time uh, now that is for the whole world. And In ancient Israel, the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, or tabernacles, was held once a year. I want to tell you about this because you're going to be at this in the coming age. The Feast of Booths, the Hebrew word is sukkah, just means a tent or a booth. It's the last in the series of festivals given to Israel. It's recorded in in Leviticus 23. And it's very much like a Thanksgiving festival. If you went to the Feast of Booths, you would say, Hey, this kind of reminds me of Thanksgiving. It's the third and final occasion of the year when all Jewish adult males were required to go to Jerusalem and appear personally before the Lord. Now, I want you to picture this. During the time of the Feast of Booths, as you're approaching Jerusalem, as you get closer, you see more and more people coming from the five different roads that led into Jerusalem, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people coming from Judea, that's the southern portion, Galilee, the northern portion, and even Jews coming from other parts of the the ancient Near East that had been dispersed during the exile. And then as you get closer to the city, you would look, you would see what looked like little dots everywhere, and as you got closer, the dots get bigger and you realize it's the world's largest campout. It's tents everywhere. And when you walk in the city, it would be the weirdest thing. If Jews had families that lived in the city, they moved out of their houses and they put tents on their roof or on the yard next to their uh, their, uh, their house or out in the street, and they were required by law to live in the tent longer than they lived in their house. This like going camping in your backyard. Everybody was living in these little tents. It was a joyful holiday. It was filled with celebration and it was also known as the Feast of Ingathering because it was at the end of the harvest season. But the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, we might say the Feast of Camping Tents, it had a memorial purpose also. It was they were living in these tents to remember the time when Israel lived in tents, when God led them through the wilderness and kept them safe. The Feast of Booths was the last seven days. And the eighth day ended with a festival of solemn a solemn assembly. You weren't allowed to work on the eighth day. They were to offer many different offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offering. And interestingly, the Feast of Booths came spiritually at the cleanest time of the year. It started just five days after the required Day of Atonement. That was the day of fasting and sacrifice and sadness, really, that reminded Israel of Yahweh's holiness, God's holiness, in comparison with their sin. But once they'd gone through the Day of Atonement, then they, they have this, this eight-day festival of thanksgiving. It was a time of rejoicing, of being thankful and reunion with loved ones. Now, why do I tell you about all this? Because you need to be familiar with it because you're going to enjoy these year after year after year, specifically a thousand of them in the millennial reign of Christ and then beyond that forever and ever. In the millennial kingdom, Christ will reinstitute the festive and joyful Feast of Booths for all the nations. All of them will be bringing their various wares. Kings will be bringing their their goods and their agricultural products and artwork, everything you can think of. What is this going to be like? It will be like the world's largest state fair ever. Or it will be like a really fun church gathering times a million. And this will be normal you will have perfect resurrection bodies for this and every other time of celebration. I do have one advantage. And that I know that um, all of you have been running around like crazy, and you've been sleeping about two and a half hours a night. And that even at the young age with the wonderful brand new bodies you guys have now, you're going to go home going, "Oh, I feel kind of old." And I love that. I, you're, I, I want you to know your suffering brings me pleasure. I, I'm really happy to know that because you can you can for a moment go, "Oh, this is kind of what it's like to feel old." I'm sore for and for you it'll be for like ten minutes. For some of us it takes a lot longer but all the fun you've had in camp can you imagine having a resurrection body with which to do all of this and never get tired never get weary never get sad one more purpose and this is the best one the tenth purpose for your resurrection we'll call exaltation exaltation I am going to have you turn to one more passage now turn with me to the book of Psalms to Psalm 150. Psalm 150. This is the high point of the book of Psalms. It's the the climactic portion of Psalms that contains 13 commands to praise the Lord. The average English translation of the book of Psalms puts seven exclamation points. It's not meant to be read quietly or sadly. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Thirteen commands to praise the Lord. Seven exclamation points. This is the high point of Psalms. Now this Psalm is most absolutely definitely for you today. You should take this as your example of of how to praise the Lord. There's joy, there's celebration involved. It's a glorious reminder that we are called to praise God, to worship Him, to, to magnify His name. But does Psalm 150 find its greatest and highest expression here today, right now? I would submit to you, no, it doesn't. But the best is yet to come. I want to give you two clues that this is ultimately looking forward to a time of praise in New Jerusalem. Clue number one. Verse one says, praise God in his sanctuary. In other words, in the central location of the worship of God, where is the temple of God today on earth? It doesn't exist except in the hearts of all the saints. There is no place to go. This is why Jesus said in John 4 that in the coming age, in the age we're in right now, we will worship in spirit and in truth, that you won't go someplace to worship because there isn't a central place to go. And yet this psalm points ahead to a time where there is a place to go. Now, Revelation 21 22 says there is no temple in New Jerusalem. But the reason given that there is no temple is that its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That God is present there. That, that in reality, all of New Jerusalem is the temple. There isn't just a single little place in the city. The whole city is it. Praise God in His sanctuary. Here's a second clue that this finds its ultimate expression in New Jerusalem. The final command of verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. What's the problem with that phrase? That has never happened. Never in all of history has everything, every human being, even every animal maybe, all at one time been believers in God and praised the Lord. That has never happened. What is this? This is a very specific Hebrew verb form that is a wish and a prayer for the future. It's a wish and a prayer for the future that the psalmist is praying for a day when every single person, everything that has breath is now a worshiper of God. Will that happen in the millennial kingdom? Nope. It'll happen briefly at the end of the Great Tribulation, when Christ returns and judges all the, all the survivors of the Great Tribulation, those that are not saved will be executed. And they'll die at that moment. And so in that moment, all people will be believers in Christ, but you still have the leftover survivors of the Great Tribulation. They're going to keep having children. And those children are going to be little sinners and reprobates, just like children are now. And so from the moment that the first sinful child is born, The world, once again, will have sinners mixed with the righteous. But in the final state, for the first time in all of redemptive history, everything that has breath will praise the Lord. And so with your resurrection body, you will praise the Lord with energy and tirelessness and vigor. You won't be trying to sneak a look at your watch right now going, goodness, it's 8.15, I'm so tired. Please let him be wrapping up. Please let him not say he has three more points. You'll have a perfect body to say, bring it on, I want more truth. Let's sing ten more songs. Joel and the band, get back up there. Let's do let's do those songs again. You won't be inhibited anymore. Your resurrection is not just so you can have a cool new body. It serves eternal purposes of glorification and invasion and administration and relation and cultivation and exploration and vindication and restoration and celebration and exaltation. Now I have a challenge for every one of you. I've kind of joked about this and I've told you about it. I I remember being 16 and some of the adults in my life joking about being old. And I remember my thinking, not me. Not going to happen to me. And we've had fun joking about that. But could could I challenge you with one thing? Don't let the coming years and the eventual pains and trials and even just the inevitable physical problems that you will have in your life, don't wait for that to force you to look Longingly for your resurrection. Instead, let truth drive you to that right now. Let it be okay to be 14 years old and say, I want to live a life that is pleasing to my Savior and I want to be obedient to Him for the next however many decades God gives me. But can I encourage you to do this? You always keep one eye heavenward. You're always looking to your resurrection. Do that now. Because I've heard from so many older people who are looking forward to their resurrection and they all say the same thing. Oh, I wish I had done this when I was 15 years old. I wish I had begun then. I wish I had begun when I was a teenager. So don't let just waiting for pains and trials in life push you toward looking forward to your resurrection. Look forward to it now. Because when you look back, if it's even possible, Your resurrected self will seem infinitely more real and that is your reality compared to what you are now. So should you live a fruitful, productive, glorious life in obedience to the Lord? Absolutely. But one eye heavenward and one eye to the future and that will make you live a life now that is effective. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the clarity of your word and and it's... We didn't even really have enough time to get into all the details that we could have but Lord God I, I lift up these precious young people here Lord in two ways first Lord I pray for those who know Christ that they would not waste their life thinking that this world has so much to offer that they wouldn't waste their lives pursuing tons of wealth and and, and temporary happiness and, and experiences that supposedly will make them feel good. Instead, let them pursue godliness and holiness and righteousness. Let them be effective on this earth. Let every one of them here be instrumental in seeing others come to faith in Christ and become citizens of the coming kingdom. But Lord, I also know that in this room it is very unlikely that every single person knows Christ. Many of them are young, Lord, and and haven't come to faith yet. We ask you, God, to help them to be mindful that all human beings will be resurrected. Daniel chapter 12 and Revelation 20 tells us that those who have not received Christ as Savior, those who have rebelled against God and refused to repent of their sin will be resurrected in order to have a body with which to experience the horrific judgment of God for all time. But those who come to faith in Christ, who repent, who believe that the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for their sins... Their resurrection will be a glorious one, something they can look forward to until that day when we're all together. I pray that before this camp is over tomorrow that every person here has bent their prideful knees humbly before God and asked Jesus for forgiveness. Thank you for this time we've had tonight. May your word drive its nails deeply into our hearts, never to be retrieved, but always to impact us for the rest of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.